This is David Bendet, Senior Pastor of Rock City Church in Corpus Christi, Texas. It's my heart to bring in special ministers from around the world that bring relevant messages that inspire you to become and do everything that the Lord has for you. My prayer is that this message will cause you to be awakened to the more that the Lord has in store. And may you be fired up for His purpose and plan for your life. Ah, so honored to be here. Uh, I told the first service, you guys are spoiled. <laughs> yep. And uh, <clears throat> the reason why I say that is because the moment I stepped in the door, man, the presence of God just welcomed me as soon as I stepped through the door. And uh, my heart just went, ah, you know. But God just waits for y'all to show up here. Y'all really have cultivated something here in terms of not just presence, but church culture. God only goes where he likes to hang out. <laughs> and that's with two things, hungry people and united people. Those are the things that attract God. And I pray I can just put my little, you know, amber on the flame that God has, you know, has already here. Uh, turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. Thank you so much. Joshua 4, read a couple of scriptures and we'll, we'll dive into this. While you turn in there or turn it on your Bibles, I'll unfurl this. Because I come with props. <laughs> All right, this has been in my family for like about 200 years, passed down from generation to generation. I'll explain more about that. I've been traveling with this since about 2001, taking it around the country, and this whole story has gone to a whole nother level past couple of years. Uh, look at Joshua chapter 4, starting at verse 4. It says this, And Joshua called the twelve men who had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later on, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now, if God says something once, that's enough for me. It's enough for you, right? When he says something twice, he's really trying to get his point across, right? He says the exact same thing, not in another book of the Bible, not even in another chapter, but later on in chapter 4, verse 19. Now, when the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal, the eastern end of Jericho, and those 12 stones, talking about the stones again, well, what are they? We'll get to that in a second. Which they had taken up from the Jordan. Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And last verse of scripture, go to John 17. Yeah, this is the year 2017. I believe this year is the year of John 17. All right? We saw all the division going on right now. <clears throat> I mean, the nation is honestly, I've been doing, uh, working in corporate America, uh, doing diversity training. I did that for back in the late 90s. I've been dealing with the reconciliation uh, healing race issue in the church for about 20 years. I've never seen us as a nation this divided. But how many of you know God wants to use a united church to heal a divided nation? All right. And 2017 is the, is the year for John 17. Look at John 17, <clears throat> starting at verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. This is the red letter stuff, right? <laughs> And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He's talking about us. Listen, what is he praying for? That they may all be one. Even as thou art in me and I in thee, that they may also be in us, 
that the world may believe that thou didst sent me. Then he restates it again. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and thou and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst sent me and didst love them even as thou hast loved me. Today we're going to talk about the God of providence who loves to make wrong things right and release justice. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I'm so blown away about just your presence in this place and connecting with David and this church. God, I so thank you that in a place called Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, that you're raising up a church like this to awaken the body of Christ across the nation. I so bless this house, God. So let, let any peace on my life remain upon it. I thank you for every person here. I ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be released. I miss release the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. God, I feel like my message is not even just for people here today, but it's something you're going to release across the nation in the spirit. So I ask for all the authority of heaven necessary to carry out your assignment to be released. In Jesus' name, come. Do what you do best and what you love most to do, Holy Spirit. Make us love Jesus more than we did before we first came here. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. How many of y'all like movies? You've seen a good movie lately, right? Like movies. But one of the things I'm starting to get a pre- gain an appreciation for is the animated films. Right? Like Snow White, Seven Doors, and what's another old one? Um, was that yeah, Cinderella, right? All those old films. Reason why is because, <clears throat> you know, when, you look, when you're looking at a, at a movie, for every one second, 24 frames of film flash by to create motion, right? You don't think about it. We just kind of take it for granted. But when they had animated cartoons back in the day, they didn't have all the computers like we have today. So they had... Artists literally draw each frame to create motion, right? Now, Craig Larson talks about that in, 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 to help us understand providence. Here's what he says. He says, producing an animated movie was a gargantuan task in the old days of animation. Artists could draw over one million pictures in one film. Each picture flashed onto the frame for a mere one twenty-fourth of a second. As we watch the movie run at regular speed, it all seems so simple. We have no idea all that goes into it. Then he says this, our lives are like that movie. <laughs> God puts infinite thought, skill, and careful attention into every single detail. Yet as, we, as our lives run at regular speed, we have no idea how much of God's providence fills every single second. All right, so it's amazing to think of what pains God goes through how he's involved in the affairs of everyday ordinary people. <laughs> Angels are blown away by it and they say, who is man that they're mindful of him? Right? We just go throughout our regular day, going at regular speed while God prevents accidents, right? orchestrates blessings, involves himself in wars, restrains wars, changes minds, interrupts bad decisions, and makes bad decisions into good decisions. In other words, God is a wonderful artist. <laughs> And he watches over every single detail in your life so much, so meticulously. Psalm 139 says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made because he watches over every single detail like that. And he watches over these things in such great detail. The Puritans called him just that, the God of providence. Right? Nelson's Illustrated Bible defines providence as uh, the continuous activity of God in his creation by which he preserves and governs. Then they go on to say, he governs insignificant things and apparent accidents. And that's what you're going to hear today. You're going to hear an amazing story where God connected me to somebody else's unfinished business. The people who used to use this kettle pot, they used it for cooking, they used it for washing clothes, but secretly they used it for prayer. This is owned by my slave forefathers in my family. They were slaves in Lake Providence, Louisiana, of all things, Right? They're in Lake Providence, and they use this for cooking and washing clothes, but secretly for prayer. And it's been passed down in our family as a memorial stone. Now, you read the story about memorial stones, right? So there's this whole generation um, that had grown up in the wilderness, 
They had never seen the Red Sea party, but they had supernatural provision every day for 40 years. They had clothes that never wore out, shoes never wore out. They had a cloud by day and a fire by night every single day. They had little cakey white stuff that floated down called manna that they ate all the time. Right? There were only two people who had seen the Red Sea party. It was Joshua and Caleb. So God brings them to the Jordan River at flood season, and he says, you know what? I'm going to send two messages at the same time. I'm going to warn the enemies of the Israelites at Jericho and display my power to them. And also I'm going to display my power to this generation who haven't seen it in this way. So he parts the Jordan River the same way he parted the Red Sea. And then he says, you know what? There's going to come a generation after them that hadn't seen the Red Sea parted or the Jordan River parted. So I want you to grab stones out of the middle of the Jordan River, one for each tribe. And these weren't little rocks. They were huge boulders that they had to carry on their shoulders. And they piled them up. On one side of the Jordan River, in the middle of the Jordan River, on the other side of the Jordan River. And they were to be the introduction into the history of God's faithfulness with the next generation. There's going to come a generation after them that hadn't seen the Red Sea part or the Jordan River part, and they had been there in the Promised Land. Those memorial stones were their sign, in a sense, to say, listen, the same God apart the Red Sea is the same God apart the Jordan River, and he'll part whatever circumstance for you. Well, that's what this kettle has meant for my family. It's been a memorial song to say the same God who parted slavery will part whatever circumstance for you, right? And so that's why I got connected to this whole thing was because of somebody else's unfinished business. It's Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40, which says, all these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith, they're approved for their faith, but they didn't receive what was promised so that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, there's a whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you, right? And so God will connect, it to, connect us to unfinished business because he's so gripped by memories. You know why Facebook is the way it is? Because we love memories, because we're made in the image of God. God loves to remember, right? So if I were to give you my scrapbook and you were to look at it, Right? You probably laugh at the afros from the people in the 70s. Right? <laughs> you laugh at, the, at those polyester suits, which are coming back. <laughs> All right? Don't throw them out too fast. But if I was to get that same scrapbook back, I might look at some of those pictures. I might start weeping over this picture that I saw of this person or that person because I remember the battles that I fought with this person or whatever. God is much the same way. He loves to remember. So... Later on, when Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, what does he do? He grabs 12 stones and builds an altar there. And he's basically saying, God, on these old stones, release a new fire for the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. And when God saw the stones, he didn't see a pile of rocks. He saw the 12 great-great-grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow him. I believe right now we're in a place where God is visiting his offspring the offspring of his friends, because everybody talks about generational curses. They're real and they're powerful. But listen, generational blessings go to a thousand generations. That means basically forever. And the blessings are more powerful than the curses. And they can overtake you. I know because I've been overtaken. <laughs> right? So he weaves together this amazing tapestry, this whole thing, when you tap into this in the place of prayer, and all of a sudden providence begins to move. But you have to recognize it when it begins to happen. So I like, I like how Elizabeth Barrett Browning said in her poem, she says, Earth's crowned with heaven, and every common bush is a fire with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. Earth's crowned with heaven. In other words, God is in our midst. But only those who see or who are willing to see take off their shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck Blackberries. In other words, there are these times where God winks at us through these uncoincidental coincidences and things we can't deny that's going on that only God could put together. You know, like what William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury, once said. He said, when I pray, the coincidences happen, but when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. <laughs> because God connects all this stuff together. So what you're going to hear today, honestly, is I'm blown away by this story so much that I even get the privilege of sharing it. And it all started <clears throat> during the uh, time of 2000 where God broke my heart for America. I began studying about the first great awakening, the second great awakening. 
and I felt God calling me into a season of fasting. So I went on my first ever 40-day fast. The first day of that fast, somebody spray-painted a car in my neighborhood. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, prayer walk your neighborhood. How many of you prayer walk your neighborhoods? And if you don't, start. <laughs> Stuff happens, you know, powerfully. I mean, I got a chance to meet people in my neighborhood, share the gospel with them. People got saved, uh, even folks from different religions. I got a chance to pray for people who were sick. I saw folks healed. But deeper than that, God broke my heart for revival in our country. And I would just walk and weep and pray for revival. I would get up early in the morning, go late at night. <laughs> and during that time, there was this little prayer gathering called The Call. <laughs> I went to, in Washington, D.C., about 400,000 people were there. I didn't know a soul there. Then I found out that a few of those leaders were going to be in Colorado Springs to do a prayer gathering. And so I decided to go. But little did I know, God was connecting me to these folks on finished business. Right? There's a powerful word that I learned. It's in Ephesians 2 and 10 where it says, we're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. And we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Listen, the word workmanship is the word poema. Everybody say poema. Poema, right? You hear the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. But even deeper than that, what poema uh, meant back then is that poema was the word that was used to describe a skillful fabric maker and tailor. In other words, God has a tailor-made destiny for all of us. And he's weaving together this amazing, beautiful tapestry. Now, on one side of it, it looks like a mess. But when he turns it around, oh, it's something beautiful to behold. He even works all things together for our good when we're called according to his purpose and weaves us into un to the unfinished business and the unfinished storyline of the ages. All right, so <clears throat> I get to this conference and uh, at one of these burning bush moments with uncoincidental coincidences happen. I have my friend Matt Lockett says, he says, what's the burning bush in your life? <laughs> what burns in you and never goes out? He says, when you find something like that, Take off your shoes. You may just hear your name being called. So I've been driven along the stream with this hunger for revival in multi-generational, multi-ethnic uh, unity through diversity. And I saw, see this moving to call and I hear about this prayer gathering. So I go to this prayer gathering, and uh, there's this little lady named Cindy Jacobs who's leading a prayer meeting. Now, it's always the usual suspect, right? Cindy Jacobs is there. I didn't know her at the time. And she's praying for a man named Dutch Sheets, who I didn't know at the time. And she starts praying for another young man named Billy Olsen. And she starts praying and prophesying over them that they would go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and do prayer and revival meetings. And then she stops and she says, hold up, there's something to this because Dutch, his real name is William. Of course, Billy, his real name is William. And here we are talking about them, about them going to Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? So I'm in the back, and I just kind of blurt out and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. About 500 folks there. And she said, that's right, who said that? And I was like, <clears throat> Because I was just hiding out. But little did I know, Mr. Poema was weaving something together. So I raised up my hand. She said, you, you're William too. Prophet lady, right? You're William too. Little late praying lady. She says, get down here. It's too white up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> but when I come down, William does cheese. William Billy also, me, William Ford III. We start weeping over each other. Never met each other before. Right? Then she prophesies over me and says, there's an inheritance in your family that God wants to use in this nation. And I hadn't made the connection to that kettle until later on Dutch gave his message, which I'll share briefly with you in a moment, that connected us together. And I shared within the history of this pod and how I was using my family. In this world, everything kind of comes full circle. Dutch said, you know, I feel like we're supposed to do this prayer gathering in Williamsburg, and I want you to go home and pray about it. So I went home, and I prayed about it. and said, God, do you, do you really want me to do this? Because I don't even know these folks. I think this is going to be like church camp, right? You know, we'll exchange phone numbers, and then we'll never hear from each other again. <laughs> That's what I thought it was going to be like. <laughs> then the Lord says to me, get, get an encyclopedia and look up Williamsburg, Virginia. So I look up Williamsburg, Virginia, and it said that Williamsburg, Virginia was named after William III of England. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because not only was I the third William to come up during that prayer time, but my name is William IV III. So then I look up William III of England in the encyclopedia, and it says, and the Dutch chose William III to be a leader. 
So I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is God or a bad joke somebody's trying to play on me, right? <laughs> so I send that to Dutch, and he sends me another email back, and he says, hey, we don't want to just go to Williamsburg. We want to go throughout New England in the Northeast and redig the wells of revival. And I said, yeah, my father said we can take that kettle pot. And he said, man, we could use that to represent the prayer bowls in heaven and how is this God around in the people that, you know, prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. So that says, I'll sing out the names of the cities we want to go to. So when he sends me the names of the cities without him knowing it, when I get the list and see the email, I'm driving through my neighborhood and I realize all the places he wanted to go to except for about two were names of streets in my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. For example, we went to Jamestown, the original settlement. Jamestown Court was across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down. Went to New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. Went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. I mean, literally, I could go on. And he also had the Chesapeake Barrier on the list. They used to call that whole area the Chesapeake. And at that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. <laughs> now, why, why would God have this happen through with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? Well, see, the Dutch were the first ones to send slave ships into America in 1619. And William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. God was saying, I want to use your relationship to show that I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. He's allowing us to see the other side of the tapestry. It's Acts 17, 26 and 27, where he says, God has made from one blood many nations and determined the bounds of our habitations time beforehand that we may seek after God and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And the thing that connected us together was this teaching the Dutch had on synergy. Now, synergy is when, is when you take two separate things and when they're working together, they don't create an additional power but a multiplicity of power. Right? Scientists say you have two horses pulling the same load. It creates so much exponential power. It's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Right? But spiritually, we know that one could put 1,000 in flight and two could put what? 10,000 in flight. That's synergy. So think about it. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting agreement in prayer between the old and the young, male and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. Right? Psalm 133 where he says, uh, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. Unity is like the anointing oil that flows from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. And the Bible says, for there, everybody say there. there. The Lord commanded the blessing. Listen, God's looking for a place called there. <laughs> it's the place where we come together in agreement, drop our agendas, come together and believe. Right? It's like when my, my, I shared this first service, but I, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, when they're Arguing, fussing, and fighting, the first thing I do is what, parents? I separate them. <laughs> right? But when they're playing in agreement, man, I get right involved with them. I get right on the floor with them. I roll around with them. I chase them around the house if they ask me to. You know, I sneak and go buy them ice cream. They ask me. They can almost, what, command it from me, right? <laughs> Father God is much the same way. When he sees us in the place of prayer, I say that prayer because Aaron was a high priest. This is about when we come together in unity agreement and prayer, something powerful happens, right? And God is the one who multiplies the results in our prayer. So I understood that, but then Dutch said this. He said, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He was talking about how he's at his alma mater, Christ for the Nations, and he was leading the student body in prayer. And while he was leading them in prayer, the Lord said to him, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of Gordon Lindsay, the founder of this school. Of course, Dutch is there, and you know how it is. You're preaching, but you're having this conversation with the Holy Spirit at the same time. So he says, okay, God, is this really you? Because Gordon Lindsay is dead. He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not into talking to the dead. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit said, but his prayers aren't dead. They're still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. So it's like with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob comes along, God changes him to Israel, and he becomes a nation because God promised this man back here, Abraham, a nation. And when he did it through Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham, right? So in other words, he's got that unfinished business. So I began to understand Psalm 133 in a whole new powerful way. See, Psalm 133 is not just about us agreeing 
with what God starts today is also agreeing with what he started in our yesterday. Because the garments of the priesthood were passed down. So when we anoint somebody today, we just put a little oil in our finger, we pop them on the forehead, and we call it a day, right? <laughs> That's not what they did back then. They would take a horn full of oil. Some scholars, like Jack Hayford and others, say there's up to like a half a gallon or a gallon of oil. They would pour it over that high priest's head, and it would drip and flow from his head to his beard, listen, and then drip onto that robe. Listen, that robe was then passed down to the next high priest. But he received a fresh anointing for his day, but that anointing dripped down and mingled with the anointing from the past. And that same garment was passed down to the next generation. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum-building anointing that goes from generation to generation to generation in prayer, the saturation of the ages, if you will. So everybody's looking for the next little woman that will lose something. They're looking for the next, you know, purpose-driven this or that. God's not looking for originality. You know what he's looking for? A successor. And to a successor, he released a double portion anointing on them that is so powerful and not only make them relevant and impactful in their generation, but make them a springboard for future generations to come. So I hear Dutch say that, and I'm, I'm a wreck because I remember this cast iron pot in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer. They were owned by a slave master in Lake Providence, Louisiana, who would beat them for any reason, and praying was one of them. See, back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. And it was against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. Now, part of that was they were afraid of insurrections and other things. But over time, slave masters didn't want slaves to pray because they felt that it would foster hope. They felt that they got hopeful they would try to run away. So this man would actually beat them. They were Christians. And if you heard him praying, he would actually beat them. Give an example of how cruel he was. There was a story told about a great uncle of ours named Willie who went fishing without asking on this plantation. So the slave master decided to make an example out of him. So he strapped him to a tree, put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. And he took a leather strap that was shredded. They had rocks, nails, and glass attached to it, something kind of like the cat of nine tails. He beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, put grease or lard on a sheet to use it like one big Band-Aid. They put grease on it so it wouldn't stick to the exposed skin in his back, and they wrapped it around him to try to save his life. But in spite of their efforts, because of this man's cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel it was. The slavery in the South, especially in Louisiana, was very, very cruel in that time period. But listen, like I said, these folks were Christians. They were believers. And in spite of this master's cruelty, they prayed anyway. So what they would do is they'd go into a barn late at night and have a prayer meeting, and this was the very pot that they would use. They would then prop it up with rocks. So it's suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They put another one on the other side of it. They would then prostrate themselves in the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle will muffle their voices as they pray through the night. <laughs> and the story they passed down with this pot is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. They were using this kettle pot as an acoustic means to keep their prayer meeting secret. But listen, Revelation 5 and 8 says there's a prayer bowl in heaven full of incense with all the prayers of the saints. They were basically modeling what happens in heaven. And one day, there's this young teenage girl. She, she decides to keep this pot and that story in our family. And why would she do that? She's probably, thinking about, she's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. And suddenly, freedom comes to her. So she keeps this pot and this story, and she passes it on to her daughter, Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Ford Sr., to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference, and I'm a wreck because I realized it was the prayers of a godly remnant of people back then 
who were not just Christian slaves, but also white Christian abolitionists back then. There were white Christian abolitionists who refused to wink at slavery. And they chose to suffer, suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. Many of them had their houses burned. They were shot and lynched. That godly remnant, the white and black Christians, came together, and they prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Right? Back then, there was a Supreme Court law called Dred Scott, which everybody thought sealed the fate of slavery. They called it settled law. They said this Dred Scott decision says that, uh, maintains that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. But God tips the bowls in heaven, releases revival, and Dred Scott gets broken because it's not settled until God says it's settled. One of those abolitionists was a man named Elijah P. Lovejoy. Elijah P. Lovejoy in the town of Alton, Illinois, a slave was beat to death, and he decided to become an abolitionist. He bought a printing press, and uh, angry slave owners would come and destroy his printing press because he had so much influence, many people were slip, switching from slavery to abolition, except for this angry mob. So he went before a city council because he was getting so many death threats. He said, listen, y'all need to protect me. And the mayor and the city council said, listen, it would, you know, it, it would behoove you to stop doing what you're doing. That would be your protection. Elijah P. Lovejoy starts weeping in front of me. He said, forgive my tears. I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. He said, I can't stop doing what I'm doing. If I did, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man. I fear God. And if I fall, my grave should be made here in Alton, Illinois. His words proved prophetic. The next day, an angry mob came to his house. Burned his house down, and as he ran out to escape the flames, she was shot and killed. That man's life is a memorial before God. <laughs> he hadn't forgotten about people like that. He hadn't forgotten about Christian slaves and other people who suffered during that time period. So, listen, the same God who broke the power of Dress Scott, listen, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can break the power of every other systemic injustice that's here right now. He's just looking for a generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. Right? So you follow history. I mean, the bowls tip, revival comes, the first great awakening happens. God says, okay, the settlers are free now. We've got to get these slaves free. 90 years later, April 9th, 1865, uh, the Civil War comes to an end. And on the exact same day, 40 years later, God releases the Azusa Street Revival, where people of all different races are used to heal this nation after the Reconstruction. And listen, we're on God's table, timetable right now, again, for another historic awakening. That's going to transform culture and society. All right? So I was sharing all this with Dutch. And he said, you know, I was praying for confirmation about us doing all this stuff. And my Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse said, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the bowls before the altar. <laughs> so here's this cooking pot that's caught muffled prayers the same way as a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. Then Dutch said this to me. Wouldn't it be just like God and his justice and irony? They use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again. I'm glad he said generation because, see, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, I have no connection to the part of his history because I'm a Christian. But because they were Christians, none of these my ancestors and forefathers are yours too. Because we're connected by the blood of Jesus. Right? In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Charles Finney and, and, and Jonathan Edwards, as you are of William Seymour and Martin Luther King and C.H. Mason, because 1 Peter 2 and 9 says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, who proclaim the excellencies of him who have called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Well, before I'm an African-American, I'm first and foremost a Christian in America. Before you're an Italian-American, you're first and foremost a Christian in America. Before you're an Hispanic-American, if you believe you, you're first and foremost a Christian in America. And when we come together in that kind of agreement, the oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. And we get woven into the storyline of the ages. So we do our prayer journey, and God breaks my heart over the race issue in a deeper way than I can even imagine. It breaks my heart for America and reviving and contending for it. 
I wept for about three hours this one particular day. I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. I said, God, what is going on? I asked Dutch. He said, God has just given you his burden for a country. He's letting you share it. Drink lots of water. (laughs) (laughs) The Lord said this to me. He said, William, you walked me through your neighborhood. Now I'm walking you through my neighborhood in America. And I'm sharing with you my heart about my pain over the division between the settlers and the First Nations people. I'm sharing with you my heart about the division between black, white, and yellow in this nation. And then the Lord said this to me. He said, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in this nation? Isaiah 59 says, it displeased the Lord that there is no justice. He saw that there was no man. He was astonished that there was no intercessor. The word displeased means to be broken or shattered to pieces. The word astonished there at the end means to sit and to stare, to grow numb, to become devastated. So when God sees an injustice in the earth, his heart is shattered to pieces. He looks for somebody to comfort his heart. And then when he can't find anybody, he, he's, he's, a, he's amazed. And he sits and he stares. And he says, I can't believe that cares what's happening with slavery. I can't believe nobody cares what's going on with the Jim Crow laws. I can't believe no one cares about what's happening with abortion. I can't believe nobody cares about what's happening with mass incarceration. I can't believe nobody cares about what's happening with the broken education system that's become a pipeline to prison. I can't believe nobody cares about what's happening with human trafficking and sex slavery. And his heart is shattered to pieces. But he's looking and he's raising up a remnant of people who are gonna, whose hearts are going to break over the things that are breaking his heart. We're going to love what he loves, and he hates, hates what he hates, in the place of prayer and in the place of action, right? So that's basically how that whole little movement, Bound for Life, was started. It was all through intercession. A friend of mine, Brian Kim, was on a Daniel fast for two years, praying, God, give us, give us a president who will contend for the shedding of innocent blood. <clears throat> and then when President Bush was finally... Put in office, he said, okay, God, I've been doing this Daniel fast, no meats, no sweets, for two years, so I've been contending for, you know, the pro-life movement and all this to happen, to to really shift in this nation. This is like 2003, 2004. He said, okay, I'm going to break my fast tonight and eat cake if you don't speak to me by midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Two years without sweets. He was like, ah, my wife's doing a sugar fast right now. It's been 30 days, and two days ago, she just, she caved in the ice cream. So imagine two years. So he's thinking, okay, God, it's, it's 10 o'clock. He's coming across this college campus. He's thinking, okay, two hours away from cake. No confirmations from the Lord yet. So I'm going to break my Daniel fast. So he's walking across campus, and then he meets a friend of his. He says, hey, Brian, I want you to meet a friend of mine who's there from out of town. Brian sticks out his hand and says, hello, my name is Brian Kim. The other person says, hello, my name is Daniel Fast. Daniel fast. God is saying, kid, I love your fast. Don't break it. I'm using it in ways you can't even imagine. (laughs) What's the burning bush in your life? Take off your shoes. You might just hear your name being called, right? So then Brian has a dream. In the dream, he sees myself and Luingo leaving thousands of people to the Supreme Court, and we had duct tape over our mouths with life written on it. And it wasn't a protest. It was a prayer meeting. And we were agreeing with the prayers of all the babies that had been aborted in America, right? Becoming a voice for, for the voiceless in this whole thing. <clears throat> so it's not a protest. It's a prayer meeting. It's a fast. And, uh, and that started Bound for Life. So 2004... We put on the duct tape, start praying in front of the Supreme Court, and all that began to happen. Shortly before that, God started showing me how we all have to do this together. <clears throat> and he want, it's, this is not just about changing laws. This is about changing hearts. We're praying for awakening. Right? Roe v. Wade is our dress, Scott. <laughs> and the litmus test for authentic revival is a side of transformation that takes place in the heart, which will manifest in laws being overthrown. All right, so, so. Lou and I were doing a prayer gathering at uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. That's the place where Dr. King started the civil rights movement. He used to preach there. And Lou and I went there to do this reconciliation service. But before we do the prayer service, I had a dream about the dreamer, Dr. King. 
in the dream, Lou and I are on our way to this prayer gathering, but we couldn't get there without first picking up Dr. King. So in the dream, he come, Dr. King comes out of a house, and he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it, and he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of the duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently and comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I think to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> Which shows y'all how I am, even in dreams. <laughs> all right? I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. The bag will make a nice souvenir. Yeah. So in the dream, I go back to pick it up. But Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. I start weeping in the dream, and he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in America. I wake up, and my pillow is soaked with tears. Then he realized I was weeping through the night in intercession. I told Lou the dream. He didn't even know the interpretation. He began sobbing. We just prayed and wept together. and said, God, what's the interpretation? What was it that he said to me? The Lord said, it's not about what he said so much as what that white bag with the black handles represented. And then he gave me the interpretation. The Lord said, William, it's the black handles. It's how your generation of blacks and African-Americans have handled your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. The Lord said, get rid of your resentment. Get rid of any unforgiveness. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. The question for all of us is this, what color is your baggage? Get rid of it, because only a united church can heal a divided nation. So I'm there in that church. After the service, you know, I'm looking at Dr. King's pulpit, and I have this book with me called Testament of Hope, about 600-page book. I'll open it. It falls open to the I Have a Dream speech, and I read in there, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners can sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And I'm gripped. So Lou asked me to share at a conference in uh, Washington, D.C. It was January 17, 2005. I was there because of a dream. We first uh, had a prayer meeting first at the Lincoln Memorial where Dr. King had this speech. And it was MLK celebration. And we got, we're saying, God, give us now a civil rights movement that will include the unborn. I think God is trying to shout to the whole nation right now. It's not about all lives matter or black lives matter. It's about this. Drill down deeper. Life matters. Drill down deeper. So, because all this stuff, and I don't have time to go into it, is all connected to the race issue in so many ways with Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and the eugenics and all this stuff that started that whole movement. All right? But that's another message for another day. So, little did I know, I would meet a guy who was at that conference as well because of a dream that he had. His name was Matt, and um, he was there because his father had suddenly died January 17, 2004. He tried to learn about his family history. He couldn't find any information on his family history anywhere. And he's praying, God, help me with my family history and heritage. Help me find more about this. And then he has this dream. In the dream, he's praying for revival and the ending of abortion with all these college-age students with a man named Lou Engle. He wakes up from the dream, and he says, who and what is a Lou Engle? He had never heard of him before. Didn't know there was a prayer movement that existed. He was working for Ford Motor Company, doing all of their commercials, you know, doing very well on the fast track with his firm and everything. But he's like, who and what is a Lou Engle? So he goes to this newly invented thing at the time called Google, types in the name Lou Engle, and up pops the face of the man that he saw in his dream, Lou Engle, and he's praying for a revival in the ending of abortion in Washington, D.C. He freaks out. <laughs> Waited a couple of days, he told his wife, and they both are startled. So he thought, okay, I'll just, uh, I'll just tell this guy this dream, find somebody who knows and tell this dream, and I'll be done with this. All right. Twelve years later, he's still not done. <laughs> All right. So anyway, he... Uh, Talks to a guy who works for Lou, and he says, you know what? You should come to this conference that we're doing, January 17, 2005. He said, oh, that's the, that's the anniversary when my dad died. I, I'm still a little tender. I don't know if I could do that. But he prays. God gives him confirmation. He said, I I'll come. But he said, Lord, if this is really you, I want to hear my name called out. I need this burning bush moment. So he gets to the conference, 
and I'm sharing about where this kettle pot came from. And I said, this came from the locket side of my family. I look in the back. There's this guy sobbing with his beard and his, you know, hands in his beard, just sobbing. Comes up in his mat. And he said, you know what? When you said locket, my daughter elbowed me and said, Dad, you told God you had to hear your name called out. He just said locket, and that's our name. I said, really? How do y'all spell it with two T's or with one? He said, we spell it with two. I said, oh, you know, my family, we spell it with one. But maybe it's some kind of, like, coincidence, like with me and Dutch or whatever. He said, you know, but when you said that, I looked over that kettle. He said, it's like the finger of God came over it. And I heard God say to me, you've been working for one Ford, but I'm connecting you to a new Ford and into a new family line to be an intercessor for America. So we prayed with each other. But, you know, eventually, that's what he did. He left his amazing job, and he took over Lou's prayer meeting. J-Hop DC and Bound for Life, and he's been running it ever since. Rain, salute, or snow, he's been there 12 years. Duct tape over his mouth with life written on it. Interns, no interns. Rain, salute, or snow, people mocking him. You can imagine the things that people have said to him, praying for revival and the ending of abortion. He is the intercessor's intercessor. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm just, it just means a lot to me to have him connected in my life. We've been very good friends Ever since then, I was the first board member on this board and all that back then. Well, fast forward to uh, about three years ago, <coughs> Matt and Lou decided to go have a prayer meeting at Appomattox Courthouse. That's where the Civil War ended, April 9th, 1865. When they come out of the prayer meeting, Lou goes into a bookstore with Matt, and he grabs the first book that he sees, and it opens, opens up to a page that says in the book, The Battle for Lockett's Farm. He's like... Matt, do you know anything about this? He's like, okay, I hear my name being called, so there's something to this. So he reads it, and it turns out there was this farmhouse called Lockett's Farm, and it was the last place that General Lee fought before he surrendered three days later at, at Appomattox. In other words, the Civil War ended at this farmhouse named Lockett's Farm. He thought, man, that's, that's pretty intense. Well, a couple of weeks go by, and his brother calls him, and he says, hey, Matt, I finally cracked the code on all the family history. You know, they have all these internet tools, and I learned that, you know, we were originally here from Scotland, and not only that, you know, we are, we're, we're connected to the Civil War, and uh, Matt says, well, that's interesting. I just found out about this place in, uh, in Virginia called Lockett's Farm, and that's the last battle for the Civil War, and his brother says, is that the place up by Sailor's Creek? And he says, yeah. Why you ask? He said, I just got the documentation on that two weeks ago. That's our family. So in other words, this is not like a guy named Smith reading about another guy named Smith. In other words, the Civil War ended in Matt's family's front yard. April the 6th, 1865, then Lee surrendered to Grant three days later. So Matt decides to drive to that place, and when he, he gets there, he sees that the house is still standing. House is still standing, and <coughs> the, the man at the security gate says, hey, go on inside the house, and maybe you know, Jimmy Garnett will show you the place. Turns out the Garnett family married the last living Lockett woman, and they loved the Lockett history so much that uh, they preserved the, that house, and it's still there today. So he took Matt in the house and showed Matt the same family history that his brother showed him. And he starts telling him, he said, you know why y'all got the name Lockett? And he said, no. He said, well, it turns out that at some point in time, y'all served the king of Scotland, and he loved the way you served him so much, he said that you had locked up the heart of the king. So he changed your names to Lockhart, which then became Lockett. Now, if that doesn't sound like an intercessor, I don't know what else does, right? <laughs> to lock up the heart of kings. And he said, y'all own lots and lots of land. Y'all the last land barons in Virginia. You had huge families, and uh, many of y'all own lots and lots of slaves. And y'all traveled across the country, and some of y'all went from Virginia down to Kentucky, which is where Matt is from. Another group went from Virginia down to Tennessee, and that group was wiped out by Indians. But he said, but another group of y'all went down to Louisiana. And when Matt heard that, he thought, hmm. And then before he ever asked him, Jimmy said, oh, yeah, and sometimes as you travel across the country, you drop the T off the end of your names. So Matt remembers the conversation he and I had had. Nine years earlier, we started doing research for about a year, year and a half. And here's the deal. 
Matt's family is the family that owned my family where the kettle came from. So think about it. Here's my family down in Lake Providence, Louisiana. Lake Providence, why? Because it's the God of Providence. Praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people who used to own them, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, he takes two people from those same family lines together and sows their lives together to war against injustice in their day and the crowd for awakening in their time. Right? Then we find out that Matt and his family also had a revivalist and an abolitionist. The abolitionist who, re- who rode with uh, Francis Asbury in that day, his name is Daniel Lockett. They carried two things in their satchels in that day, a Bible and a manumission book. <laughs> we know what the Bible was for, but the manumission book was so that if there was a slave owner there in their midst, if he got saved, they would slide the manumission book over to him, and he could sign it to set his slaves free. See, I have people in my family who are a mess. I got folks who are in prison. I've done stupid stuff, but I have people back here contending for revival and the ending of slavery. May I have people who own slaves, yes, but he also had family members that secretly taught slaves how to read and write, and also were abolitionists against slavery. See, generational curses and blessings, they run in families. They run in nations. It's everybody's little favorite word right now. It's the word narrative. There are dominating narratives in our families, and they're generational blessings and curses. That's what they're called. But what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline, what narrative do you want to be a part of? The healing of the hurt, the blessing of the curse. What storyline do you want to be a part of? Thank you for taking the time to listen to a message from one of our ministry friends and family at Rock City Church in Corpus Christi, Texas. If you'd like more information on the ministry, please visit our website at www.rockcitycorpus.com or feel free to check out our Facebook page of Rock City Church in Corpus Christi. Have an awesome, rockin', fired up day.